We're going to be in the, the book of Mark, and Pastor Rick last week, he, he taught the 1 p.m. service, yeah, he taught out of Mark 1, we just got into the book of Mark, it's the second gospel, in the, new, the second book in the New Testament, the book of Mark, Matthew, Mark, Matthew, Mark, there you go, that's number two, and wake up, it's 1 p.m., wake up! Some of you already had lunch, and that was a mistake. <laughs> and, and, and Pastor Rick, he, he, he opened up Mark 1, and now it's been a week, seven days, so now we're in Mark, <laughs> dang it, seven, <laughs> because we go through a chapter a day in our anchored reading. I set some, I set some of you guys up on that. Um, but if, if it, normally you would go Mark 1, Mark 2, one Sunday, the next Sunday. But in our anchored reading program, which we go through, uh, we read a chapter of the New Testament every single day. And so I encourage you guys to, to do that with us, and then you'll have all the context of the reading of the scriptures as we move through a, sometimes a 21-chapter a book in three weeks. So there's a lot to cover, and we're going to cover that. And the book of Mark, I really enjoy it because it's, it's kind of, in a way, it's like the, the YouTube short of the Gospels. And if you don't understand that reference, it's like the Cliff Notes version of the Gospels. And if you didn't understand that, ref- that reference, it's like the Reader's Digest version. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Reader's Digest it came out in 1944. It's crazy, right? It's been a long time since then. Uh, but Sorry, I made some of you guys feel old. <laughs> but I hope I, I covered my generation. You guys understand what I mean, right? YouTube short. We got Cliff Notes for the Millennials. We got, we got Reader's Digest for everyone else. And, and the, it's, a short, it's the shortest gospel in the four gospels. It's the most condensed of the four accounts of Jesus' ministry on earth, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And some, something that I think is really cool, and some people here, you might not know this, whether you missed last week, you missed Rick kind of breaking this down, but... Mark was not a disciple of Jesus, a physical disciple of Jesus. He did not experience what he's talking about and what he recorded. And a lot of us, I think we go, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those are disciples, right? Those are four of the 12 disciples. No, actually, Mark was not one of Jesus' disciples. He didn't physically walk with Jesus. And neither was Luke. I think I heard someone say that. Neither was Luke. Luke didn't physically walk with Jesus, but he wrote the gospel of Luke and the entire book of Acts, the majority of the New Testament. Why is that important? I think that it's, it's important because it's the story of the Bible. It's the inception of how the Bible that we just handed out, the Bible that you hold in your hands, how it came to be, how God moved on the hearts and minds of faithful men to compile his word. And so half of the Gospels, two out of four of the Gospels were written by men who did not walk directly with Jesus. How could they who never walked with him, never walked with Jesus, have authored a Gospel, an account of Jesus' ministry on earth? And although they may not have been directly disciples of Jesus, they were disciples of apostles, disciples of disciples. Mark was whose disciple? Peter, correct. Yes, awesome. And Luke was Paul's, uh, Paul's disciple, correct. And it's interesting too that Paul actually didn't know Jesus physically either before he was on the road to, to Damascus 
right? While, while he was persecuting Christians and Jesus appeared to him. And some people might think, wait a minute, how, how can we trust these letters? How can we trust these books if they were written by people that weren't even there? I actually think it's the opposite. I think it, it affirms it actually supports the other books of the, of the apostles and disciples that actually walked with Jesus because there is no contradiction. And so not only does it highlight the reliability and authenticity that even through the game of telephone, even through the handing down of information, there is no contradiction. It highlights the reliability, the authenticity, but more importantly, I think it highlights the unending importance of discipleship. Disciple. Some of you guys, maybe you're new to church, you've never really heard that word explained. You may have heard it used but not explained. It simply means a learner, a pupil, one who follows one's teachings. Now, obviously, Peter, in and of himself, he did a lot of amazing things. He crushed it. But only Jesus modeled discipleship teaching people, can only that can take someone like Mark who didn't actually walk with Jesus and use him to author one of the four gospels. He's forever canonized in God's word and was used by God to write one of the gospels because he was faithful to sit at the feet of someone and be discipled. Isn't that awesome? What, I wanna challenge you guys. Who are you learning from? Who are you a pupil of? Jesus, of course, right? We get that. We're disciples of Jesus. We learn from Jesus. But who? Human. What human are you learning from? Are you sitting at the feet of? Or who is learning from you? If you have younger people in your life, and younger, simply, there are younger people than me, believe it or not. Younger than you. Well, I asked Pastor Rick, and he said no, and I asked Pastor Rob, and he's too busy, and I asked Pastor Micah, and he said no. I just sat with someone who was really cool. People have it kind of upside down, I think, oftentimes, and I don't want to discourage anyone, but I think this is important for us to wrap our heads around. I just sat with someone, young guy, younger than me, a few years younger than me, and, and usually when I sit down across from people and we meet together and they're younger than me, they ask me to disciple them in something, and that's totally fine. So that's what I was, I was used to, what I was expecting. And we're talking about discipleship. And he goes, you know, the Lord put something on my heart. The other day I was, I was praying and the Lord put discipleship on my heart. And I was like, all right, here it goes. You need a disciple, let me guess. Or you, you, you need to be discipled, let me guess. And he goes, and the Lord put a, young, a younger man on my heart in the young adults group. And he called me to disciple them, to call them and to disciple them. And so I called them and I set that up and I was like, Wow. That's how it should be. That's Jesus modeled discipleship. Jesus picked his disciples. His disciples didn't pick him. You don't get to pick who disciples you oftentimes. God does. Hey, God told me, God spoke to me. He told me that uh, he wants you to disciple me. It's interesting, he didn't tell me that. (laughs) The person that's discipling you will not be perfect. And actually, a lot of people get burned out because they seek out the discipler that they think is perfect. And then they spend time with them and they're like, oh, this guy is not great. This guy is not perfect. 
They may not be a pastor, but if there is someone that you know who's walking with Jesus, who has their life committed to Jesus, and they're seeking after him, you can learn something from that person. You should be learning something from that person, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we see on full display in, in scripture, throughout scriptures, everywhere that Peter messed up. He messed up. We see his, his, his mess ups and we see his strengths and his successes. Pastor Rob, he has a saying, you eat the meat and you spit out the bones. It's like eating a Costco chicken. And this is something that I, I truly believe, this isn't even what we're really gonna be talking about this morning, but this is just a preface. This is what we're talking about right now, but this is the preface to the book of Mark that I think is important. And, and something that is lost on a lot of us believers in the culture and the time we live in, it's cool to hate on the generations that came before us. And it's sad, it's, it truly is sad. We highlight their failures, we don't respect and honor them as elders, and it's crept into the church, it's crept into this area of discipleship. Anything that our parents did, our culture says, do the opposite. I don't wanna be like my parents, do the opposite. And we demonize them and we vilify them for the, the bad things that they did instead of all the awesome things that they accomplished. Or we think we can do better than they did, and it's tragic. It's a, we, it's a lack of respect for what God has done in people's lives that have gone before us. We, we end up starting to treat older people like babies. Have you noticed that? Come on, Grandpa. Let's get in the car now. Come on, we're getting in the car. He's like, I know, I helped invent the car. <laughs> I didn't fight in a world of war for you to pat my butt and usher me into the car like I'm a little baby. <laughs> but, but sometimes we, we can get there. Because we're familiar and we live in a very familiar culture and we start to despise and, and st- the lack of respect. It's not always a despising. I, I was in, when I was in Korea, I almost said North Korea. I wasn't in North Korea. When I was in South Korea, <laughs> they've nailed this. They figure this one out. They honor their elders. They sit at the feet of their elders. It doesn't matter how old they are. They don't treat them like babies. It might take them 20 minutes to get a coherent sentence out of somebody, but they sit there and they wait for it because they know it's gonna be a nugget. It's gonna be a good thing that they wouldn't have heard anywhere else if they weren't doing that. We have to bring that back. There might be a, a believer right next to you here, even today, that God wants to use to speak into your life to help sanctify you through. And he wants to use their testimony, their testimony, how cool is this? This is the picture of Peter and Mark, their testimony of walking with Jesus to enrich your testimony in walking with Jesus. A generational move of God's spirit and vice versa. If if you're a Jesus follower who has young people in your life that need direction, be open, available and willing to let the Lord use you to pick somebody, choose a disciple, choose someone. Someone chose me. That's the only reason I'm here. Micah Harris the, the guy that plays electric guitar, when I, his name is also Micah. And, and I, I remember when we, and, and Rob jokes about this all the time, that when I first started leading worship, I was not good. I was not good. Micah Harris, 15 some odd years ago, not quite 15, 14, 13 and a half years ago, quite literally taught me how to play guitar. And, and over a decade le- later, as we raise our children together, as we raise our family's children together, we're still ministering together because he was like, you know what? He's not great 
I have to, it's a lot of work to teach someone how to play guitar. It's a lot of work to teach someone how to do what you do really, really well. But he's like, you know what? I, I see past this hard moment of teaching and I see what the Lord is trying to do through me, even though it would be a lot easier to just mind my own business and not befriend somebody, not disciple somebody. This is that picture. And we can imagine Mark sitting at the feet of Peter, just listening to the testimony of his life as Peter's sharing with him all of the things that the Lord taught him, that he saw, that he witnessed and did while walking with Jesus. And Mark faithfully records it. And Mark being the shortest of the gospels, it's the shortest one as we were talking about, there's a lot that's covered in a very short amount of time. And, and, and it's, it's a short version, and I can imagine Mark sitting there, and he's like, that's a lot. He's just like trying to keep up. He's like, oh my God, oh, next story, next story, next story. We're just going through it. And we're going to be in chapter 7, but the first six chapters, there's a ton that's happening. If you've been following along over the past week, he's casting out, Jesus is casting out, out demons. He's cleansing the leper. He's healing the paralytic. He's teaching parables. He ordains the apostles. He sends them out in his name. And right after Mark writes about the apostles going out, then they, show, they come back. He's like, all right, yeah, next thing. And he talks about them returning from their mission. And in chapter six, Jesus and the disciples, they feed the 5,000. We read that. And then Jesus walks on water in the Sea of Galilee. I think it's really interesting. The side note that in, in the book of Mark, it's, it's Peter walking on, on water is left out. It's not in there, which is interesting because this is the one that Peter's actually overseeing. Presumably because Peter didn't want to brag. That could be a possibility. We don't know. Or maybe he was ashamed that at some point he lost a little bit of faith and he started to sink. Maybe Peter was bragging. Peter was like, yeah, I walked on water. And Mark was like, I'm not going to put that in there. <laughs> it's just, come on, Peter. <laughs> and now we're finally leading into where we're, we're going to be today. It, the verse right before chapter 7, Mark six fifty six. It says, wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. The healing power of Jesus was unmistakable. It was unavoidably famous in the region. And after hearing all of the literal miraculous things that Jesus and his followers were doing, you would think you would think that the religious leaders of the time would marvel and that they would step down from their high places of spirituality and faith to worship the Messiah whose prophecies they'd been memorizing and studying, who is there to literally set them free from the bondage of their own sin, their own religiosity, but no. Instead, we find out and what we're going to read about is that the religious leaders came down from their high places in Jerusalem to cast judgment and to level disputes against God himself. The Jewish leaders, they knew the commandments of God, but they were caught up and blinded by the pride and practices of their religion. They'd forsaken true, authentic worship. And instead, they conflated and exchanged the commandments of God for the commandments of men. And that's our sermon title as we go into Mark chapter 7. I'm going to invite you guys to stand up as we read these verses out of the 7th chapter in the second gospel. Mark, starting at verse 1, we're going to read through verse 13. I'll have it on the screen. You guys ready? Steady? Steady? 
Go, let's go. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way. I'm special. Holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplaces, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches, the places where they ate. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me and in vain they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other, thing, many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, to honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for discipleship. We thank you for moving in and through your people. We thank you that you've you've given us the opportunity, Lord, to learn not just from your word as the highest authority and the most infallible, the only infallible authority, but the people around us. We pray that through the the crafting, the Holy Spirit-inspired crafting of your word, you would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Let's take a seat. Relax. Not too much, though. We'll fall asleep. In verse one, the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him having come from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Has anyone here been to Jerusalem, been to Israel? Nice. That's a lot. That's awesome. I'm, I was bummed that we had to cancel, we had to cancel the trip. I, every time we go, I always encourage people that are on the fence. I'm like, you never know. This might be the last chance. This might be the last chance. And I'm really hoping that that the last time I went wasn't the last chance I get to go. But for those of you who have been to Israel, you know, you know that unmatched feeling of ascending up to Jerusalem. It's different. And it's, it's, it's crazy because anywhere you are in Israel, it doesn't matter whether you're north of Jerusalem, whether you're south of Jerusalem, whether you are west of Jerusalem or east of Jerusalem, wherever you are in Israel, you are always ascending to Jerusalem. It is always higher. It, it, it's always taller. It's always bigger. It's always more important. And as much as that is significant for us now, it's still special to us. It was that much more for them then. Jerusalem for them was the epicenter of the one true God's people. This is where a lot of the Pharisees and the scribes, they, they worked, they taught, they studied. This is where all the spiritual people are. You guys wouldn't be allowed it? No, I'm kidding. This is, where they, this is where they were. And, and all of the buzz, all of the talk, all of the, 
And, and granted, there, there was no social media, and so for things to spread across a land was a big deal. Had to be pretty important. And, and as the news of the disciples and what Jesus, what the miracles they were doing, the Jews in Jerusalem, they heard of it, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, and they were skeptical, and honestly, rightly so. Someone claiming to be Messiah, it's a big deal, especially if you're Jewish. And in a way, they were doing their job as spiritual leaders of the time on the surface. But there's a difference between testing the spirits and quenching the spirit, as we talked about in Spirit of Truth and Spirit of Error. You see, the religious leaders of the time, they descend from their literal moral high ground of Jerusalem, the epicenter of worship, not to see whether or not he was actually God, whether or not Jesus was actually God, but to try to figure out how they might use him for their own gain, their own political power, and ultimately to come against him and murder him. They put down their books studying about their coming Messiah to step down from their man-made temple to judge the one who stepped down from his eternal one. And this wasn't the first time. This wasn't the first time that the Pharisees and the Jews disputed with Jesus. They dispute with him over eating with sinners. They had all these accusations to level against God. They had a dispute with him of how he celebrated the Sabbath. They had a dispute with him because he touched a leper, because he healed a demoniac that had wandered inside the territory of the tombs that was ceremonially unclean. (laughs) I just can't, I have to say. Molly was like, you should take the word ceremonially out because you mess it up every time. (laughs) And then I messed it up. (laughs) That one word. Uh, And their mindset was, I'm going to go investigate God. Are you really? Maybe that's your heart here today. I'm going to go check out this whole God thing. God. Good luck. It's, it, good luck. You're going to lose, but that's a good thing. Trust me, it's a good thing. And I'm, I'm guilty of this often, actually. I'm, I can be, be kind of cynical and apprehensive to the things that I hear about. Whenever I hear something cool, I'm like, yeah, is it really though? I don't know. I'll I'll be the judge of that. (laughs) Be skeptical, but don't be cynical. Every every cool thing that God's doing, just because you're not a part of it, doesn't mean it's not cool. Be, Be skeptical. You have to be wise. You have to be discerning. But don't be cynical. The religious people had, they had already made up their minds beforehand. They knew that they didn't want what was happening to happen. They judged God against not the word of God, against their own standards. It's it's not that they didn't have the correct knowledge. They knew everything they needed to know to come up with the right conclusion about Jesus. Just like we all do. It was a heart issue. It was a heart problem. They loved being religious more than they loved the thought of actually being with God. They loved what it looked like to the people around them to see them worshiping God more than they loved actually worshiping God. They loved appearing clean more than they loved being cleansed. The things they decide to call Jesus, God incarnate and his disciples, who just got done performing literal miracles, the Jews call them out. They've, 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 showed, they've showed 
all of the power of God, the disciples in Jesus. And what do the Jews call them out on? Washing their hands. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. They stepped down. And now this has continued. Remember, this is just Mark's commentary on the situation. We haven't even gotten to the dialogue yet. Now, when they saw some of these disciples and eat, they eat bread with the defiled hands, that is with unwashed hands, they found fault for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. The Messiah shows up to fulfill thousands of years of prophecy and change the fabric of reality. And the Pharisees are like, hey, let me see, let me see how you wash your hands. Let me see you. That's all cool and all. I saw you feed 5,000 people with a Lunchable. (laughs) But like, how do you wash your hands, God? And boy, did they take washing their hands seriously. They really did. What's important for us to understand is that Jesus is not criticizing the written law of God. He's criticizing the oral traditions, the oral law, what they passed down, they added to God's law. It wasn't just the biblical prescribed Old Testament washing of hands that we're talking about. This was something extra. R.C. Sproul, he comments on it. He says, there are forms of ritual cleanliness set forth by God in the Old Testament. That is true. But they are few and they are easy to follow. But what the Pharisees and the scribes did over the centuries, the rabbis who interpreted the law of God, they kept adding to those ritual requirements one after another so that the regulations far exceeded the regulations the law of God imposed on the people. So I'm going to break this down a little bit. It's just to, to highlight and illustrate how ridiculous this was. The, the ceremonial washings, they had a special stone vessel. They had special water. It wasn't even enough to wash your hands in a special way because what, what good is washing your hands in a special way if the water's not special? So they had special water. They, ordinary water might be unclean. So to wash your hands in a special way, you started by taking the least, at least enough of this water that would fill one and one half eggshells. Then you poured the water over your hands, starting at the fingers, running down towards your wrist. And then you cleansed each palm by rubbing the fist of the other hand into it. Then you poured the water over your hands again, this time from the wrist towards the fingers. And a really strict Jew, they, they wouldn't just do this before they ate, not just before every meal, but every course of every meal. And the, they were deadly serious about this. They said that, that bread eaten with unwashed hands was no better than excrement. There's a story of one rabbi who that he failed to, to perform this ritual washing and he was excommunicated. You're out of here based on the way you wash your hands. Another rabbi was imprisoned by the Romans and he used his ration of water for ceremonial cleansing instead of drinking, nearly dying of thirst. He was regarded as a great hero for the sacrifice. <laughs> just, just drink the water. Look, these things, they might seem very spiritual, but when you pull back the veil, you realize it was rooted not in the commandments of God, but the commandments of men. And some of you may be thinking, how could you possibly get there? In your spiritual rationale, how could anyone possibly come to that conclusion? And how could you stay there once you're confronted in this religiosity? It's always easier to pick out things that you don't struggle with, as we talk about often, It's easier than you think, especially in the infant stages of how some of these things come to be. 
They seem to be, they honestly seem to be built on sound spiritual logic when you break it down. And David Guzik does that for us in a series of questions that you can trace from infancy to heresy. We're going to do that. Does God want us to honor him in everything we do? Yes, that's an easy one. Did God command the priests to wash their hands before serving him? Yes. Shouldn't every faithful follower of God have the same devotion as a priest? Yeah, I guess so. See how we're starting to bridge that gap? We're like, devotion, okay, but what does that have to do with washing hands? Isn't every meal sacred to God? I guess so. Shouldn't we take every opportunity to make ourselves pure before the Lord? Yeah, I mean, I guess so. Doesn't God say, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Wasn't that that literal? Uh. And you can see that we started as a specific command for a priest in a temple before he served, served God, snowballed into a law imposed on anyone that wants to be close to the Lord. It's very easy to answer those questions with a series of yeses, and then you end up with a commandment that doesn't line up with God's word. And if you end up with a commandment that doesn't line up with God's word, you are wrong. God's word is not wrong. This is the accusation that the world levels against us. And when they do, it's right. It's a, we're promised to be hated by all. That's what we talked about last time I taught. Hated by all. That's the promise. For who? For his name's sake. But how tragic is it if we're hated by all because we've added to God's word? That's a shame. We, we, we're guilty of doing this for some things. And I think it's important to, to, to point them out and to talk about it. We can't be upholding a false doctrine and, and adding to God's word. We've had, I've had, a, there's a litany of things, unbiblical expectations on what clothes are acceptable. Last night I wore a t-shirt. Today I, I, I dressed up a little bit. I got a short sleeve button up on. <laughs> with drinking alcohol, with worship music, with tithing. Tithing is a big one. We can go down that line of questioning. Is it better to give than to receive? Yeah, of course. Does God tell us to give him the first fruits? Yeah, for sure. Should that not be a requirement for church membership? Wait. Uh, should church members have to be disciplined for not tithing? Shouldn't Pastor Tony call all of the donors who haven't tithed this month and ask them why? I've known people who have gotten fired from their job in ministry because they couldn't prove that they tithed. Should you be able to pay enough money to get loved ones into heaven? It's a Protestant Reformation reference on indulgences if you're a nerd like I am. And we forget that God says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful Giver. God tells us not to be drunk and warns against drunkenness. Does that mean anybody that drinks any alcohol is in sin? No. God tells us to dress modestly and to not cause our fellow brothers and sisters to stumble. Does that mean that the only acceptable attire to wear to church is a dress and a suit and a tie? Certainly not. Is anyone here following that? No. But some churches would look at you like you were insane for not showing up in a suit 
And you can go down the, lit, the litany of questions that start from a biblical commandment of God and end in a pharisaic, pharisaical commandment of man. These are doctrines that we hold close. And sometimes we get confused. Pastor Rob did, and it was so good. It fired me up for this sermon. He's in 9 and 11, today if you missed it, he, he, taught, he taught about eschatology. And it was so good. You have to. This is, a, this is church discipline. You have to go watch it. You have to watch it. Either one, nine or 11, you have to. It was so good. Eschatology, how, how a lot of times we end up holding eschatology into this place where if anyone disagrees with us, we equate them to, to heresy. We, we equate, equate them with a heretic because they don't follow this certain doctrine that I've been taught since I was a new believer. It's so important. You might choose to walk in devotion to some of these things. You might decide, in order to honor God, I'm, I'm not touching alcohol. That's amazing. I'm going to wear a suit to church because, because I, I want to put my best foot forward, not for man, but for God. That's awesome. But are you doing those things because of your reverence to the Lord, because you are saved, or are you doing those things to be saved? Because you feel like it's a requirement that God has put on you. The commandments of God always have a specific purpose. The Jews were saved because they were chosen and set apart. All the things in the Old Testament that God had commanded that they do was significant because much of, specifically in the time that people around them, it was going against what the pagans were doing. And God had them do it to symbolize that his people live different because they are saved, because they are chosen. But the Jews, over time and tradition, they flipped it and made it about being saved because they lived differently. It's the same concept for us now under the new covenant. We do not obey Jesus in order to prove to him that we love him. We obey him because we love him. Some of you guys need to wake up in the morning and say that every single day. We don't obey Jesus in order to prove to him that we love him. We obey him because we love him. And as we continue on in this, these verses, we see the first actual dialogue. There are many things, many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, it's the first thing they asked, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Why do your disciples not walk according to not the law, but the traditions of the elders? The Pharisees knew exactly what they were asking. They weren't confused about which commandments came from God. They knew they knew which ones came from their traditions and which ones came from God. They were not tricked into thinking that God said something he didn't actually say. Nobody's tricked into thinking. If you read your Bible, you're not tricked into thinking that you have to wear a certain dress or a certain suit in order to be let into the church. It doesn't say that in the Bible. We know this. But they were proud of themselves. And our human heart has the propensity to ask questions, to take away and to add to what God has said. 
And the, the Jewish leaders, they had held the oral traditions that had been passed down on par with or even elevated it above the sacred scriptures. We know that there is none righteous, no, not one. We know that. And, and this, is, this is the reality. This is where they got it twisted. And in one of Warren Wiersbe's commentaries, he points out that Rabbi Eliezer said, he who expounds, expounds the scriptures in opposition to the tradition has no share in the world to come. Did you catch that? In opposition to the tradition has no share in the world to come. The Mishnah, a collection of Jewish traditions in the Talmud records, it is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict scripture itself. Guys, this is why we are Protestant. And I, I know that, that might be, you might be here and it's confusing because you're like, I'm done with this Protestant stuff. Everyone's just so irreverent and no, there's no traditions and I miss the liturgy and I, and I miss the, the, the devotion and I miss the, the importance of communion and the, and the, the sacrifice. And I understand I truly do. If anybody understands that, I understand that. And there's an exodus happening right now from the Protestant faith. There's an, there's an exodus happening to, Orthodox, to, to Eastern Orthodoxy, to Catholicism. And as much as I value and I love and respect tons of things, a lot of things about my, my Orthodox and Catholic brothers and sisters, there is one huge ultimate distinction of why we are Protestant and not Catholic why we are Protestant and not Orthodox. We believe scripture to be the only infallible authority. The only, in, not the, and this is, where it gets, this is where it can get confusing and people can confuse you. Not the only authority. Scripture is not the only authority in your life. Are you listening to me talk to you right now? Authority, authority. It's not the only authority. It's the only infallible authority. Understand this. It's the only authority that cannot be incorrect. If I ever say anything that doesn't line up with God's word, I am wrong. Not God's word. And you saw that in, in what, they, what they believed was true. Is that it was more abhorrent to contradict the rabbis than it is to contradict the scriptures. No rabbi, no bishop, no cardinal, no pope, no pastor is infallible. We all have us in nature. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody. So why is the keeping of his word as our ultimate only infallible authority so important? Because it's a safeguard. It protects us from wrong thinking. And we can see how Guzik laid it out in the series of questions, how easy it is to fall down that rabbit hole. And they were, they were so far down the rabbit hole of religiosity that even with all the bells and whistles, they ended up worshiping God in vain. Even with everything they did fell under the category of worship in their tradition, in their, in their oral laws, that's, that's in vain. Even that, it ended up in vain. Vain worship. And that's how Jesus responds to their question. He says, he answered to them, 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. You reject the commandment of God that you may keep, so that you may keep your tradition. John MacArthur said that their worship was directed at the correct God, but in the wrong way, with the wrong heart. The, the only wrong way, the wrong way is not how they worshiped, it was why they worshiped. Same thing for you. It's not about whether or not you raise your hands or do not raise your hands. Just because you raise your hands does not mean that you all of a sudden are worshiping God. It doesn't work like that. Everything that the Pharisees were accusing Jesus and the disciples of not doing correctly were things that the culture of the time had come to view as essential things that religious people did. This is the way that religious people act. The Jewish leaders here are pointing out all the things they fully believe disqualified Jesus and his disciples from what they believe to be true religion and worship. And Jesus points out that the very thing that they missed keeps them from truly, authentically worshiping God, the posture of the heart. The thing that I cannot see, the thing that I can't call you out on, you can hide it from me. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's easy to make this sermon about liberalism versus legalism or, or, or just focusing on legalism. But legalism and liberalism, whether you feel like you have to be doing things and you're imposing those rules on other people outside of God's word, or you feel like it's just grace, bro, and I can just sin more, that grace may abound, certainly not, Paul says. It's the same problem. Different sides of the spectrum, the same problem, a heart issue. The heart of the worshiper is the thing that matters. The heart of the worshiper. 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance. Man would judge a worshiper and go around and like, uh, you're not speaking in tongues. You're not raising your hand. You're not whatever it is, doing backflips down the aisle. You're not, therefore you are not worshiping. And God says, I don't, I don't see you that way. I see through all of it. I see your heart, what no other man can see. You need to think about this seriously. Could Jesus say the same thing about you? And it, it's, it might not be something that encompasses your whole life, but in moments, think about it. They sing during worship, but their hearts are far, far from me. They volunteer but their hearts are far from me. They attend church as all of you are currently, but their hearts are far from me. They read their Bibles, but their hearts are far from me. You can pretend to everyone in the world, but not to God. Well-meaning Christians who do not know their Bible get caught up in what man says and man thinks and think that they are worshiping God and bringing him honor and glory, doing what he desires, but they are deceived and Christ does not accept worship from 
a heart postured away, postured away from him. I used to come to church knowing that the only reason I was there was simply to check the box and make sure that everybody in my life knew that I went to church. It was my only motivation. And God sees through it. If that's your motivation, you need to know that what everybody else around you is thinking is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. You guys saw this, this ad in the Super Bowl, maybe some of you. Some mixed feelings. <laughs> Didn't watch it. <laughs> I, okay, so this is a, a, an ad, and he gets us ad. And it's this picture that's supposed to illuminate how amazing Jesus is as the people who are standing up for the rights of unborn babies are over there just uh, gossiping and just kind of uninterested. And then the young woman who's walking into the abortion clinic to get an abortion, who's got tattoos on her legs and she's, she's obviously struggling. And then there's a, a woman washing her feet as Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He gets us. And I understand that it looks nice. It looks correct. It looks right. Religion, religion, not the Bible, but religion would say, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That looks like, that looks like something Jesus would do, for sure. That person will have clean feet. Very clean feet. But their baby is gonna be murdered 10 feet away on the other side of the wall. The, the, the mother will walk away on the clean feet and do a life racked with guilt and condemnation and pain. When we elevate our words above what God says, we become useless for the kingdom. And we blaspheme his name. Literally, we blaspheme his name because we, 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 we craft this picture of Jesus that is, more, is, is like us a God in our own image that looks like what we would do. And then we put Jesus's name on it and expect people to look at us and go, look how godly he is. No, you just called yourself God. Just because you would wash the person's feet instead of telling them the truth and trying to stop them doesn't mean that that's what God would do. We end up choking out the true... And, and what... A, The, and the way that they depict the people that are there to actually speak truth, uninterested. Do you, have you ever stood outside of an abortion clinic? Do you know how hard it is to talk to people? Do you know the amount of emotional turmoil? How difficult it is? It's, it's, it's wrong. It, it's, it, the depiction is incorrect. We're too busy meeting the standards of what culture expects from Christians. And just like the Pharisees missed out on incredible works of Jesus and his disciples, they missed it and we miss it. We have to get it right. And ironically, do you know what foot washing represents? Repentance. God forbid. God forbid we recognize we're wrong and turn the other way. God forbid we change our mind. That's not, what, that's not what culture says is Christianity. Culture says Christianity is acceptance, not repentance. There's a huge difference. You, you will not be accepted 
without repentance. You cannot be accepted without repentance. It was like, foot washing was like baptism. It was a representation of a washing away of our sin and fleshly desires and turning to Jesus and being set apart for Jesus. And like the Jews ceremoniously hyper-focused on washing their hands, they missed Jesus. They missed true repentance. They missed true spiritual cleansing and a true relationship with God. He washed the disciples' feet who went on to do what? Certainly not murder babies. They had been cleansed to set apart to be murdered themselves in sacrifice to God. If you think it's about getting your feet clean, if you think it's about washing your hands, you think it's about Jesus just doing you a cute little favor on your way to hell, you're wrong. Those washed feet, we talked about that and hated by all, they were all killed. Blessed are the feet that carry the the gospel. Isaiah 52. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. They didn't have very epic footwear back then. (laughs) How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings... Were those clean feet? No, it wasn't about clean feet. Who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. It was never about clean feet, just like it was never about clean hands. And to reduce Jesus washing the disciples' feet to a a gesture, a kind gesture to make someone feel good is to cheapen the grace of God. It's, It's what Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. These people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And we end the passage with Jesus calling the Pharisees out on this idea of korban. The illustration of this is is amazingly applicable for us. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. That's what the law said. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban. That is a gift to God then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. So the concept of korban here that Jesus is referencing was a way that the Jews got around honoring God's law to honor their parents, but still got to look spiritual to everyone around them. It was a workaround. What can I do? What kind of crazy spiritual gymnastics can I perform in order to look spiritual but not actually have to do anything about it? And instead of actually helping their parents, all they had to do, their parents would come to them with a need and they would say, you know, Corban, and that is, uh, I'm sorry, I've committed that money to God. I love you and, 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 and I... I'm devoted to the Lord and I'm devoted to honoring you and, and, and not cursing you, but, but I've, devo- I've given that money already. I've devoted it to God and to the temple. And, and, and they wouldn't have to, to do as much. The temple would get a cut and their parents would remain in poverty. You know what that reminds, it reminded me of as I was studying this? It's, it's what can be to me one of the most, and I'm guilty of this, this is, this is me, one of the most hollow Christian phrases that on the surface sounds really spiritual, 
but oftentimes it's just there to get you out of what you know God has called you to actually do. Do you know what it is? Yeah, I'll, I'll pray about it. I'll pray about it, yeah, yeah. Or, or I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. We've all said it and not meant it. We've all said it and not meant it. Some things you don't have to pray about. What? What do you mean? Some things, do, some things, decisions that you need to make, do not need to be prayed about. Why? Because God already told you to do it. You already know what you're supposed to do. You don't have to ask God what you should do. Your friend, your friend doesn't need you to just tell them that you're praying for them. They actually need your help, your counsel, your support, a place to stay, a shoulder to cry on. I'm a very non-emotional person. Ask my wife. It is, it is not comfortable for me to, to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. I'm the get over it guy. But sometimes your friends need you to cry with them and be there for them, not just pray for them. Please pray for them. That's why I'm doing it in quotation marks. Too often we hide behind religion so that we don't have to actually be the hands and feet of Jesus. We check the box and honor him with our mouths, but what we actually do with our lives is far from true worship. What does every athlete, every celebrity say when they get behind the podium and they receive their award, a super shiny piece of metal? I want to thank God. No, you don't. You don't actually want to thank God. If you actually wanted to thank God, you probably wouldn't be receiving the trophy right now. <laughs> Hated by all, remember? It's, it's a very difficult situation to find yourself in. They just want everyone around them to think, they want to experience the benefits of looking like a Christian without actually having to do the Christian things. Maybe we post a public picture on Instagram with a caption, God is great. Throw in some prayer hand emojis so everybody knows we're a Christian. What about actually risking the criticism? Actually, no one's criticizing you for saying God is great. Nobody's criticizing you for the prayer hands emojis. They're going to criticize you for taking a stand against the unborn, against, against murder of the unborn. Take a stand for something that may not be popular, but you know to be biblically true. True worship from the heart. It costs you something. It might cost you everything. It costs Jesus everything. We have, we have to stop playing games with God, playing spiritual games, acrobatics with God to try to get around his word. He knows what we are doing. He sees through it all. And if you're trying to figure out how to worship God in the least sacrificial way possible, you've missed the entirety of the gospel. It's not about the smallest amount of sacrifice with the largest amount of recognition. It's about complete sacrifice while giving Jesus all of the recognition. Our culture is inundated with vain, our churches are inundated with vain worship and cheap grace to fulfill the commandments of men. I mentioned cheap grace earlier and I, I wanna read you this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer as we, we end on this. I'm not gonna put it up, but I'm gonna put a, a picture of him up. 
Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. It is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Don't cheapen the grace of God by preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. By ushering people to get, to get baptized and, and to show people that they are Christian without actual discipline. Discipleship, same word, one we think of as a bad word, but it's not. Discipleship. What's interesting about the, the word defiled, as it is in the scripture, is that it's not what we think it is. It's not our word for, it's not what we think. When we think defiled, what do we think? I just mucked a stall, my hands are filthy, I got dirt everywhere. I, I know when I think of defiled, I think of changing diapers. That's uncle- talk about unclean hands. So, I, I, how many we had? I don't even know how many kids we have in diapers right now. It's crazy. <laughs> I think it's I don't know a lot. Uh, <laughs> defiled, like changing a poopy diaper and then sitting down to eat without washing your hands. That's not the word for defiled here. The word for defiled here is common. Just normal hands. The disciples' hands weren't even dirty. We're not even talking about dirty hands. We're talking about hands that aren't special. And that's what the commandment of man will do to you. It'll add more and more and more and more. And even your clean hands aren't good enough. So wash them again with different water. Even your clean feet aren't good enough. And you will never be able to clean your hands enough to stand in the presence of a holy God. You cannot scrub your hands clean enough from your sin. It is impossible. The the Jewish people, they washed their hands over and over and over again. And then they pierced his, missing the fact that the blood that flowed from him was the only thing that could actually cleanse them. Worshiping God with a sincere heart. All the Christian things 
that you are doing, do not do them out of obligation. Do them out of adoration to Jesus. This is what Pastor Rob says. If you are tithing, if you're giving money to the church because you're trying to impress God, impress someone, you're trying to pay for your sins, please stop. He will provide somewhere else with something else. Get right with the Lord. Have have your gift to God be an overflowing of your love and adoration for him. Jesus, if I just get my hands clean enough, if you could clean your hands enough to appease God, you wouldn't need Jesus. And that's why we're here, to recognize that we can't do enough to clean our hands enough to be in his presence, to clean our lives enough. There's two different people here. And, And some of you guys feel like no matter how hard you try, you cannot clean your hands enough. You keep trying, you keep trying over and over and over again, and you keep failing. And then there's the people here who feel like their hands aren't really that dirty. And they know it's just, it's just whatever. Or, or maybe, or maybe you're here and you feel like there's, you're not even gonna bother trying because your hands are so dirty that you're just gonna go back into it. And Jesus bled and died and his blood flowed from his body so that all of that can be cleansed. Whether you are consumed with guilt for not being able to to do all the things that Christians are supposed to do in culture or whether or not you've given up because you've sinned time and time again, God is the only one that can cleanse your hands. He's the only one. You cannot wash your hands enough. You cannot get clean enough. He will, he will wash you clean by his blood. Amen? Amen. I'm gonna invite the worship team up and as we worship, this is the call to action. This is the point for us here that are are believers. Have, Have spiritually, actually cleansed hands. Regardless of how, how physically dirty you, are act- you have been cleaned. Remember that. Remember that you're approaching God not, be, not in the same state that you were in while you were in sin. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday. You can approach him with the correct heart. I don't care if your hands are raised. I don't care if your hands are down at the side. I don't care if you're laying face down on the floor. Is your heart right before him? Don't worship him in vain. Don't be so consumed about what the people around you are thinking that you either don't or you do. Either way, it's wrong. Focus on him. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you've, you've cleansed us. Lord, we we cannot do it ourselves. We cannot do it without you. Our lives are void without the cleansing blood of Jesus. It's just more work. It's just more trying. It's more washing. It's more cleansing. And Lord, we need to be cleansed by you. Lord, we thank you for that picture of baptism. Lord, being dead to ourselves and alive in you. God, we worship you in that spirit. We worship you in the spirit of authenticity, not vanity. 
in saying thank you for everything you've done for us. Lord, we don't wanna cheapen your grace. We recognize the cost, what it costs you. And we're willing to lay it all down in worship to you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.